Hello and welcome to another episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by Matt. And Matt, it was a very interesting week, capped off by the fact that the Richmond area team, most likely to get an at-large bid at this point, is not the same one that it's been the last few years. Yeah, this was a super interesting week. We had a ton of unusual results. So you're alluding to the VCU loss at home against George Mason. Then George Mason followed that up with a home loss to GW. But I don't even know if those are the most the craziest games of the week. I think the biggest upset might be St. Joe's covering the spread without Ryan Daly against Rhode Island. Because yeah, that I, was, mean, I always wanted to see what would happen when St. Joe's didn't have their star. And they actually, they only lost by 18, which was not as bad as I thought. What was your classic case of expectations where... Rhode Island, I think, just assumed that they were going to throttle them in that game, and they came out playing really flat. Meanwhile, St. Joe's had a ton of guys looking to step up, looking to make a name for themselves this season with the shadow of Ryan Daly not over them. And basically the whole story of the first half is St. Joe's just played so much harder than Rhodey did. And then the second half, the talent kicked in. But I mean, it's it's not that crazy of a thing. And it's just a credit to Billy Lang for getting his players up for that game, getting them to really play their hardest and to believe that they had a shot, even though Daly wasn't playing. I really thought St. Joe's was going to have an A-10 win by now, but they're 0-12. It's, it's looking pretty grim, although they do still have a chance against Fordham. But there is a real chance that they're going to be the first winless team in about 10 years, which is just such a fall from where St. Joe's used to be a couple years ago. But there's brighter days ahead, I'm sure. We don't need to spend too much more time talking about the Hawks because it's probably just going to make us feel bad. No, the only thing we need to mention on that is we have gotten oh so close, just 13 days away. We're recording this on a Sunday night. Uh, just 13 days away from the true game of the century between St. Joe's and Fordham. Yeah, that's that's going to be a good one. Make sure to tune into that. Hopefully that's, that's where you were talking about flex scheduling a couple weeks ago. They need to flex that to like ESPNU or something. At least get that on some national network because you know A-10 fans are going to want to tune into that one. Yeah, and we're looking ahead to the battle between the two teams at the bottom, but the way we're going to start this pod, talking about the two teams at the top, Rhode Island goes into UD Arena on Tuesday and it's immediately met by the Flyer Inferno. Something that we normally don't see until either late in the first half or early in the second half, but Dayton came out absolutely firing to start this game, up 17 nothing off the bat. Yeah, I think Dayton started out 7-for-7 seven seven from the field. Rhode Island just never really had a chance after that. I think they got it within 9 points later on in the first half, but... Dayton just kept their foot on the gas, and overall, yeah, I mean, the game was kind of just over before it started. Rhode Island, credit to them, after the 17-0 run, they actually played pretty much even with the Flyers, but the damage was done. I still don't really look at this game for Rhode Island in a a negative light, because going at Dayton's one of, that's the toughest game you're going to have in the conference, but I think Dayton, just with their constant offensive pressure how you're never going to hold them scoreless for long once you get in that deep of a hole you're just not going to come back most of the time yeah I mean this game certainly isn't a negative for Rhode Island you lose on the road to a top 10 team in the country 
That's what's supposed to happen. And the Rams had a pretty good resolve as the game went on, despite the fact that they they looked atrocious for the first seven minutes. And I think that's actually more so a credit to just the absurd level that Dayton's defense reached in the early going of that game as compared to Rhodey's offense not playing well. Yeah, and Dayton's defense, too, in the first half in particular, I thought they did a great job defending Fats Russell. I think Fats only had about four points in the first half, and guys like Rodney Chapman and Dwayne Cohill came in and just locked him down, which was huge. And, uh, yeah, offensively, too, Dayton just got off to a great start overall. You had... Multiple guys contributing. Obi Toppin and Jalen Crutcher both ended up with over 20 points. And really, Dayton didn't shoot the ball all that well, which is something Rhode Island's good at. They don't give up a ton of three-point shots, but Dayton was still able to get the ball inside, which is just what they do, and very few teams can stop that. Yeah, and this is a game that was a potential weakness for the Flyers. And, you know, we've said it before. Sully over on Blackburn Review has said it before. And Really, I think any educated Flyers fan will tell you that the way that this team is going to lose a game is because they will either get killed by some super offensively talented but massively strong center or a quick, small point guard who is just a killer scorer. And Rhode Island has two of those guys with Fats Russell and Cyril Langevin and really neither of them were a problem in this game. And it's the first time all year in which Dayton has played a small guard at the talent level of Fats Russell and really shut him down. And I know he got to like 18 points, but so many of those were garbage time or when Dayton sagged off on defense. But when we were in the heat of that game in the first half, they took him out. And Basically, no one's done that to Fats since the Richmond game the first weekend of January. Yeah, no, I thought Dayton did a great job there. I mean, like you said, offensive rebounding or giving up offensive rebounds, that's always going to be a problem for Dayton. And Rhode Island did have 18 of them. But it really didn't hurt the Flyers that much because they weren't really capitalizing on second chance points. Rhode Island only ended up shooting 31% on two point shots, so. It's not like guys were just constantly getting putbacks. I mean, I know Rhode Island has guys like Cyril Langevin and Tyrese Martin that make a living doing that, but overall, when Dayton was giving up offensive rebounds, they weren't giving up that many quick, easy baskets off those, so overall, that wasn't a huge issue, and Dayton actually overall won the rebounding battle, because they had 37 defensive rebounds, and you had guys like Obi Toppin and Trey Landers putting up double-digit rebounding efforts, so... I wouldn't say it was a great rebounding game, but it was good enough for Dayton. Yeah, and good enough is all you need when you're just murdering the other team on the outside. Yeah. Dayton's perimeter defense was so good that Rhodey was basically just chucking the ball at the rim for about the first 12 minutes of the game, where I think at one point we were right around the second media timeout, and I had counted four good shots from Rhode Island. These were and these weren't like players on Rhode Island's team just taking horrible shots to be gunners. It was oh the shot clock's at three. I need to just pull up. Yeah, I, they were they were just so locked. The only guy who could get space at all was Tyrese Martin. Yeah, and he didn't have a good shooting night. So I thought Dayton set the tone early on the defensive end. Uh, they they weren't giving up any 
anything easy, and just their effort was really good at the beginning of the game. So, one thing we do need to talk about with regards to this game, there were seven technical fouls, which I don't think I've ever seen before in a game that didn't involve a a massive fight. So we had one on each bench, and then for Dayton, Trey Landers and Rodney Chapman got teed up, and then for Rhode Island, Tyrese Martin, Fats Russell, and Antoine Walker all got technicals. Overall, this game, it was kind of disappointing. Like, being at the game in the student section, watching the 17-0 run was incredible and one of the best moments of the season. But after that, like, to be honest, this wasn't that fun of a game. They could just never get in any sort of rhythm. Yeah, and I I actually, even more so than the refs, I want to kind of rip in on not these specific announcers, but just announcers in general who feel like it's their obligation to say, oh, the refs got to get control of this game. <laughs> it's out of control. They, they got to do something. This isn't okay. We need sportsmanship. No, come on. Nobody cares. Well, like, I couldn't even tell. So I wasn't, I was at the game. So, I mean, I can't see everything, but did anything really even happen between the teams? I mean, obviously it's chippy when you have two good physical teams, but I didn't see anything egregious out there. I mean, maybe you'd see it better if you're watching on TV, but I couldn't really notice anything. Yeah, they they had some small shoves, and what was honestly the worst thing to happen in all that was Fats Russell on the ground fighting for a loose ball, and Rodney Chapman dove on him. And it actually probably should have been a foul on Chapman. Yeah. And uh, I a lot of times they won't call that when the ball's bouncing around, but the way he came in was kind of weird. And ha- had they just called a personal foul on him, I wouldn't have argued that. And it, it ends up with... The, Russell kind of just like pushes him off from him. And then Chapman said something like nothing was going to happen in this game. No one was going to get in a fight. Yeah. And the refs just felt this inherent need to be like the gatekeepers of goodness (laughs) and just not let anything get even close to happening. Yeah. I mean, I just, this is one of those things that just drives me crazy about basketball refereeing where we just don't need to have these technicals. Nobody threw a punch, so just let it happen. I enjoy watching basketball games that get chippy. No one was going to get hurt in this game. Like, that wasn't going to happen. They were just going to keep barking at each other and probably, like, making fun of each other's mothers. And at that point, who the hell cares? (laughs) Well, just don't make fun of Obi and Jacob Toppin's mother because she was at the game. I wonder how that was for her. So she had one of those split jerseys representing Dayton and Rhode Island. I I guess she's got it. it. It's good either way. She got to see one of her sons win. But I wonder how she felt when Obi, as he promised before the game, he put Jacob on SportsCenter with that windmill and one dunk. That was pretty incredible. Unfortunately, this wasn't a good game for Jacob Toppin, which I, I still, he's going to have good days ahead of him in the A-10. But man, there was, between that happening and the blocked shot in the corner by Obi, there were some pretty funny moments between the brothers in this one. Well, and we now get to spend two minutes every episode just talking about some amazing new thing that Obi did. And yeah, the windmill dunk was, it was great. It was awesome. But we've seen Obi do stuff like that before. Maybe not quite that good. He blocked a three in the corner when he was like four steps away. Yeah, that was an incredible That's remarkable. I mean, he, he he now has one play a week where it's 
this incredible sports center worthy play that's not a dunk, but it's something that he hasn't done before. And he really we talked about this last week with the the new arsenal of fadeaways in the post. He's actually getting better by the week. Yeah. He's a better player now than he was in November, and it's incredible. Well, don't tell that to the UMass student section, because they chanted at him. They called him overrated. I, I don't really know where they're going with that one, but especially when they were already down by four with like 12 seconds to go. Like, you're probably not catching up. But, yeah, Obi's incredible. I mean, everybody should know that by now. And I'm still – I'll never get tired of seeing him on SportsCenter. They – it's just crazy that Dayton gets their highlights just about every night on ESPN because of him. I never thought I'd be seeing that. Yeah, and a, a big shout-out to two members who uh, I'm going to consider them both part of the Flyer community, Solly over at Blackburn Review, who joined us a few weeks ago, and Scott Van Pelt from SportsCenter, since you, you mentioned the top 10. Uh, SVP went on Solly's podcast. This is a, a shameless plug because it was a good episode. But – he left a message in there for Dayton fans. It's something that I've been trying to say all year and people don't want to listen because of what happened at the end of the Archie era, which is you have to just enjoy this ride. We can't be worried about like potentially getting upset in the second round. And I think that that's, I think that's actually the biggest black mark on this Dayton season is that, People aren't enjoying the ride quite as much as they should be because they're all afraid that this is going to end in flames in March. You know what? This team is ranked sixth in the country. Their final four odds are four to one, which is just absolutely absurd. You know what? Just spend the next three weeks dreaming about the final four, dreaming about the Elite Eight. And if your heart gets ripped out of your chest, so be it. Because odds are it's probably going to happen anyway. Because only four teams make the final four. And Dayton might run into a team that is actually better than them in, in the form of a one seed. So you know what? Just just dream these next three weeks. And they're going to be so much better if you just let yourself believe that this team can cut down the nets. Maybe not at the national championship, but at least at the Elite Eight. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I completely agree. You just need to enjoy it. Who knows when we're going to see something like this ever again? I mean, it, it might be a long time. So yeah, and I want to end the Dayton talk with this, and it is this is something that is more so important moving forward, and it's one of the biggest things I came out of with the from that Rhode Island game. So really had to think this week. Well, why did Dayton do such a great job against Fats Russell when they massively struggled against Devon Dodson and McKinley Wright and I know he's a little bit of a bigger guy, but Javante Perkins kind of destroyed them too in Arch Baron Cup round one. Yeah. And the difference was in all three of those games, Rodney Chapman took two horrible fouls to start the game. That happened against Colorado. It happened against Kansas. It happened in St. Louis. And then those guys went crazy against guys who weren't Rodney Chapman. Chapman came back in. He played incredibly passive to try to not get back into foul trouble and then got into foul trouble in all those games again anyway. The Rhode Island game, he was clean. And him and Dwayne Cohill were glued to fats all night. And, you know, I don't think, I've always been scared of the big center. I still think that's a huge weakness. But the idea that, like, a Devon Dodson type guy could be the one to just absolutely kill Dayton's season in March, I think 
is a little bit far-fetched. And if Rodney Chapman can stay out of foul trouble against that guy, whether it end up being like a Marcus Howard at Marquette or, or possibly even Dodson again, I think if Rodney Chapman could stay on the court and if Dwayne Cohill continues to play with the confidence we saw from him this week, I think they're fine. I'm not too scared of that guy, but Rodney has to stay on the floor. I think Rodney Chapman kind of got a bad rap for a while this season because he went cold at the beginning of conference play, but I really, I've been impressed by him the last couple weeks. And then as for big centers that go against Dayton, I know he's never going to give them that many minutes, but Jordy Chamaga's been playing well too. He had two more good games this week, so hopefully some of those weaknesses get addressed with those guys stepping up. Because really, I mean, if they can play well on defense, that that makes it a lot tougher to beat Dayton because those are the two types of players that really, really give UD trouble. Yeah, and by the way, I think Jordy's been kind of getting a bad rap all season because the first we truly saw of him was in the Kansas game where Yudoka Azubuki just destroyed him. And, and what was he supposed to do? <laughs> well, it's not even that Azubuki's so good. It's the fact that Jordy had returned to practice like four days before that Mm -hmm. and had played about eight minutes the entire season before that game happened. He probably shouldn't have played. Like it was just a matchup where they had to use him. The reason he was terrible in the Kansas game is because he had been on a basketball court again for like four days. He had no training camp. He had no practice. And now you start to see as he gets more acquainted with this team and as he now looks 100% healthy, he is the viable defensive backup big man that they need him to be. And I fully trust him to play 12 minutes in an important game against a great center, which is really all that you can ask him for. Yeah, no, I agree with that. He's he's done a great job. All right, um, I think, are you ready to move on from Dayton? I think we've said all that needs to be said. Yeah, let's go over to the uh, the Lumber Liquidators Classic. Yes, and, uh, the best, the best, well, second best rivalry name in the A10. Arch Baron Cup's number one, but if anybody gives their rivalry a corporate name, you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna make fun of it all the time. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, this one down in the Robin Center, Richmond at home, they exact their revenge on VCU in a, a game that really kind of flowed the same way as the last one, where just a complete run of dominance from the home team out of the gate. Road team kind of starts to climb back late in the first half. And then the second half is just repeated blows to the jaw from the home guys. But, you know, I I was even more impressed by Richmond's performance in this win than I was in VCU's performance the last time these two teams played. This was a Richmond team that knew exactly what the game plan needed to be. They executed it to perfection. And they played with just... 120 mile an hour levels of energy for the entirety of the game. Yeah, I just think one of the biggest differences, just the shooting percentage is completely flipped in this game because the first game, VCU knocked down a bunch of threes early and really set the tone. And this time it was Richmond. And I think having Blake Francis back, even though he didn't have that great of a game, just having him on the court makes it a lot easier for Richmond's other players to get open shots. Nick Sherrod was pretty terrible in the first Lumber Liquidators game, but he knocked down five threes. He was just fantastic. And then I thought Richmond did a really nice job on defense, too. They weren't giving VCU too, too many open looks early on, and they forced 16 turnovers, which is 
one of the keys to success, I'd say. Yeah, and I actually think if you if we end up having a third edition of this, a rubber match in Brooklyn, I think it's more likely to go the way that this week's game did than the last one. There was a lot of unsustainable stuff the last time these two teams met. Namely for VCU, this was before anyone had figured out how to properly guard Bones Highland, which is something teams have done exceptionally well the past few weeks and really limiting his manic energy. But he absolutely crushed him. He was the one keying the big run from three. But on the other side, the reason Richmond could get any shots off is because VCU was playing this lockjaw defense, basically half-court havoc, I think is what I called it then, where they were just trying to knock the energy out of Jacob Gilliard, Nick Sherrod all game, knowing that Richmond didn't have replacements for them. And then this game, they decided, no, let's not do that again. It worked really well last time, so let's just never try it the entire game. Yeah. Yeah, I thought uh, guys like Gilliard, I mean, he, he had a rough time, too, in the first game, and he didn't turn the ball over as much. Overall, he just... they Richmond still had 17 turnovers, which is high for them, but I, I thought they did a better job overall just handling the press and getting more open shots. One factor I do think that contributed to this a little bit Marcus Evans was out for VCU, and even though I know a lot of people have been wanting Bones Highland to get his chance in the starting lineup, I do still think Marcus Evans is the better on-ball defender, and losing him was kind of rough, especially since Highland didn't have a very good game. One thing I did tweet too, um, it's just kind of a shame we never got to see these teams play each other at full strength, because this time Evans was out, and in the first matchup, Blake Francis didn't get to play at the Seagull Center, so... That was kind of a shame, and I, I agree. I, I would want to see a, another game in Brooklyn, maybe, where both teams are healthy. Yeah, and you mentioned Evans being out. Funny enough, the, the one part of this game where VCU's offense worked was very, very early on, where Isaac Van was basically just running the point. Yeah, he was and pretty good. He was slashing and kicking in a way that we have haven't seen from Evans at all this year and have seen very minimally from Highland. Like if you if if anyone's interested and has the tape, go back and watch the first four minutes of this game and watch VCU's offense. I know that they didn't end up putting up that many points, but Isaac Van just going to his right and attacking the basket, that was the most effective point guard penetration that VCU has had in probably two months yeah. at any point in one of these games. And then they went away from it. And I, I really don't get it because Van played so extremely well the first about six minutes. And he was kind of keeping them afloat. I know their first five baskets, it was four Isaac Van going to the hoop layups and an Isaac Van assist going to the hoop. Yeah, no, he was good. Um, so I guess I, I want to come back to Richmond, but... I feel like we need to spend some time on VCU's first game of the week because that George Mason game was really... Honestly, that was probably the most shocking game of the season to this point, where George Mason came to Richmond and won 72-67. Yeah, and you know what? It goes hand-in-hand with the Richmond loss. And the biggest thing in both of those games is just a blatant lack of urgency from VCU. And, you know, we, we try to be really nice on this podcast these guys are college kids. Yeah, probably too nice. Uh, they're going to make a lot of mistakes, and and there's a reason why we don't we don't criticize guys for like missing late game free throws, or for 
making the wrong pass at the wrong time because these are 19 and 20 year old guys making mistakes. But there is one thing at this level, actually not even at this level, at any level of basketball that is unacceptable 100% of the time. And that's when you just look like you don't care. And St. Joe's suffered from this a lot last year. And now it feels like VCU is afflicted with this. Like th- there was no urgency from them in either of these two games. And it was, and it can't, it, this came after the Rhode Island game where they looked like they didn't care in that one either. Like, I, I just, I don't understand what's happening to this team right now. This Richmond game was basically the Super Bowl for both of these teams. They both came in right below the bubble, knowing that a win over the other one not only would be huge for their own resume, but basically might just put their arch rivals at large cases into the grave for the season. And a a big credit to everybody on Richmond, the players, the coaches, the fans, every person in the Robin Center who had a spider on their chest spent the entire game acting like their entire season depended on it. The energy was incredible. Grant Golden was playing like a madman. Chris Mooney had one of his best games of the year. The fans were crazy the whole time. Tyler Burton looked like a guy who had been told before the game that if he didn't get five rebounds, he wasn't allowed to play basketball again in his life. He only got three, though. Is that bad? <laughs> he, he had three in the first half. He, he yeah. actually he didn't, he didn't get enough minutes, in the second. Though. You're right. But he didn't get enough. <laughs> He, all three of those rebounds were him just flying in from the wing, crashing in over people. Yeah. And it kind of epitomized the energy that Richmond had that whole game where everybody looked like they just wanted so badly to win that game. And then VCU's just walking up and down the court. Tra la 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 la. <laughs> we talked about how well they did pressuring Gilliard and Sherrod last game and how that was basically the reason they won. Because they made those guys uncomfortable and they completely choked off Richmond's perimeter attack. They literally didn't try it this game. Yeah. They, they did it like one time. The energy just wasn't there for VCU. And like going back to the George Mason game, how many loose balls went to the Patriots? Because it felt like just about all of them until the last couple minutes, VCU started pressing and they stole a couple inbounds and forced some turnovers. But where was that the first? 30 minutes of the game and I just thought George Mason I mean that was a team that has really had a rough go of it I mean they came in at two and eight they hadn't won anything important in a long time and those guys came in just with nothing to lose and they played their hearts out especially I want to give a shout out to AJ Wilson who had 14 points and 11 rebounds also blocked five shots I mean his energy was just dare I say palpable the guy played his heart out and you just didn't really see that from VCU until the end of the game. And they, yeah. they did make a comeback too. I mean, they made it interesting. I, I think they cut it to three points at, at one point in the final minute, but by then it's too late. You're, you need everything to go perfectly to make that type of comeback. And they, they just couldn't. George Mason made just enough free throws down the stretch. So they were able to hold on. Yeah. They made a comeback because they're just way better than George Mason talent wise. It was the only reason. Yeah. It's, not, it, it's not like, they found some crazy formula. They just started playing faster and they started caring more and playing with more of an urgency. And George Mason, this is a team that came into the game with two wins in conference. We spent last week's episode talking about whether or not Dave Paulson was going to get fired. Yeah, I know. And they just completely dictated the pace the whole game. 
Mason knew their best shot was just get through the press and then just play it as slow as you possibly can. And then they just handed the baton off to Xavier Johnson and Jamal Hartwell. And against a defense that's supposed to be not only one of the best in the conference, but one of the best in the on the planet, those two were like conductors with their little, I don't know what it's called, the little stick thingy when, yeah. you're, at a, when you're at a concert. And that was the ball for them. The two of them were just dictating every single thing that happened on the offensive end. They were just waltzing into the foul line. They were making the passes that needed to be made. And Mason was just cutting VCU apart with beautiful second and third passes. And they played the exact pace you have to play to beat the VCU defense. And VCU did absolutely nothing on their end to try to change it. So I guess we need to talk about this now. That's probably going to be a quad four loss for VCU, especially after George Mason just went down against GW on Saturday. I'm not even really talking about an at-large bid, but just in general, do you think VCU can come back from this? I mean, obviously they host Staten on Tuesday, and then they have a, a trip to St. Louis on Friday, so it's a huge week ahead. What do you expect to see from them this week? Because their season's really on the line, and they got to show up these next two games. Well, first of all, they're not getting an at-large bid. That ship is over. It, they could pretty much. they could have survived the Mason loss. I'd still because say because it was their one bad loss, but then they they had to follow that up with what was going to end up probably being a Q one win at Richmond by the end of the season. Oh, it will be, yeah. But then they didn't go get it, and you know yeah. th- this team had a shaky at large resume going into the week, and the one thing that they could rest their head on was the fact that they never lost to bad teams. They beat everybody they were supposed to beat, and the Mason game destroyed that narrative. I will say, to play devil's advocate, if VCU runs the table, I think they probably would still make it, just because right now they're... Lenardi has them as the... the No, I mean, so that's what I'm saying. I don't think they will, but they have a home game against Dayton. That would get them in a better position. And then they still go at St. Louis and at Davidson, which those are like borderline quad one and quad two opportunities. So those would be really good wins. And they're only in the next four out right now. So they're not quite as far off as people might think, even after this really bad week. But yeah, I mean, I I don't see them winning them all. Like, you know, they're going to have an electric environment for the Dayton game. And I I think they're going to give Dayton a tough game. But even if they do win that, are they really going to win at St. Louis and at Davidson? I just, I don't think so. That's a really tough order. And they've just, they've dug themselves such a hole. Really that LSU win too. I mean, LSU's all right, but that's not enough to just get your resume over the top. That's just a, what, LSU's like a seven seed and you beat them at home? I mean, that's good, but that's not really enough to hang your hat on when that's your only big win. Is it going to be an electric environment this week? I feel like the VCU fans are just kind of depressed. I mean, they are, but you, I, I would think, I'd hope so. I mean, I wouldn't want anything less for Dayton. Like, that's, I want Dayton to be challenged, honestly, with a good environment. But we'll, we'll see. It, and so let's let's look at those games this week. And, you know, 
this is a dark point in the season for VCU. They're coming off of back-to-back losses, both of which were pretty embarrassing. And you say to yourself, well, you, you know what? Dayton's a great team, but at the very least, like, you know VCU's going to give it all they got because that's the natural way to look at this game, and that's normally what happens. Yeah. Well, VCU's played their has had their game of the year twice already, both times against teams that they had already played this year, like Dayton. In both games, there was a blatantly obvious way to go about the game because if you just watched the first round, you could see in both games that there were splits based on how VCU was running both their offense and their defense that, hey, this worked, this didn't. And in both of those games, VCU came out playing the exact defense that didn't work in both games. And Jacob Gilliard and Grant Golden and Fats Russell and Jeff Doughton all said, thank you very much. We will enjoy destroying you for the next 40 minutes. Yeah. They have also now looked completely dead three times in the last two weeks. So, you know, if they play like that again, Dayton's going to beat them by 50. Like, this is going to be the 107-point game from two years ago all over again. And so, so. (laughs) whether or not this is a game, basically, Mike Rhodes and the VCU players have to decide whether or not this is going to be a game. Because they have played with negative amounts of energy the last few weeks. And they better rev that up to 100 right now, because if not, they're going to get squashed like a bug. And then their season's done. I and guess, they can hope that they figure it out before before they get to New York. I just want to say one more thing about VCU, and then let's move on to Richmond, because they had a big week. But uh, so with VCU, we have a team that was the preseason favorite. Like pretty, pretty much everybody had them pegged as number one. And this is a really experienced team that has started four starters most of the season. They're built on really good defense. And they've kind of underwhelmed this whole season. Doesn't that sound just a little bit like the 2019 St. Louis Billikens? And I'm not... This is kind of a bad time to say something nice about VCU. But just think about it. I mean, the experience is still there. These guys have all won before. I think the at-large ship has completely sailed. But I don't want to completely give up on them in Brooklyn just yet. And I'm not saying I'm expecting them to win. But we saw nobody thought St. Louis was going to win last year either. So I just think you you gotta keep them on your radar a little bit. They, these guys have been there before. They've won a lot of big games as a group, and you know what? They're they're going through a bad stretch right now, but there's still time. I mean, they're going to have probably four games in Brooklyn where they're going to have a chance to save the season. I don't necessarily think it's going to happen, but I I just think it's something to consider. Yeah, and I don't want to jump the gun because we we're going to talk about this, but if you want to make the case that somebody can be this year's version of SLU, it's Davidson. Those two teams have a hell of a lot more in common than last year's SLU team with this year's VCU team because you try to remember what changed for SLU last year as we turned into late February, early March. Well, they finally overcame the crippling loss of Cartier Gordon which left them a massive hole at power forward, which teams exploited all of January. And they fixed that by playing DJ Foreman more, by trusting him more in the offense, and just by simply by him playing better. 
And then they fixed their three-point shooting because Javon Bass and Tremaine Isabel both just started shooting better. There were fundamental flaws with that St. Louis team that Travis Ford found a way to fix. And by the way, that was a team that was playing their ass off 100% of the time, even as they were struggling. And that's more so where Davidson is at, where Davidson was has been struggling all year with fundamental flaws regarding lack of toughness, regarding the fact that they didn't realize they weren't going to have Pritchett this year, and around John Axel struggling. Well, now Bochi Odom's playing really well and giving them some extra toughness down low. Now John Axel's starting to get it going again. And by the way, this was a team that was still playing hard all year. VCU's issue is not one of X's and O's, although it partially is because they don't use the right X's and O's. It's an issue of preparation, execution, and just overall like giving a damn. So, and until they until they make the choice to really pick it up and try to be the team that wins in Brooklyn, then no, they're they're not going to be this year's St. Louis. So let's actually let's move on to Davidson. So we were going to talk about them last, but we're already on the subject. So Davidson just hit a huge week, and I know their first game was against Fordham. So who knows if that means anything? But they just won two games by a combined fifty nine points, capped off by. A primetime ESPN2 win at St. Bonaventure. And all of a sudden, for the Ken Palm heads out there, Davidson is now fifth in the Ken Palm rankings. They're up to 67 compared to where they were at 98 just two weeks ago. Or I really don't want to put any confidence in this team, but man, they've looked really good. So based on what you just said about comparing them to last year's St. Louis team, which I understand what you're saying, but I think that's a stretch just because of the sheer difference in athleticism between those teams. But what do we think? Does Davidson have any chance of maybe getting hot at the right time and scaring some teams in Brooklyn? Oh, it's a 100% a stretch that they could be last year's St. Louis team because I just, I don't think that they've fully cured their fundamental flaws. And I just don't, I don't think that they have the bodies on their roster to be able to do it. But they have, they've done a better job of making themselves into a, a more complete team. And so now they've, they've gone from a team that basically just appeared to be dead in the water for the first month of conference play to they're really dangerous again because they're just going to shoot the hell out of the three ball. And on a night where John Axel or Kellen Grady or Carter Collins is just red hot, then all of a sudden they become a massive, massive threat. But for them to really make a run in Brooklyn, I think they have to somehow find a way to get to the sixth spot or be seven and hope Richmond jumps Rhode Island. Because I just think that this team is just so poorly constructed to be able to play against Rhode Island or Dayton especially in a game where that team would have a few days to prepare and Davidson would not. That just feels like a nightmare waiting to happen where all of a sudden Obi has 28 points and is throwing down alley-oops in the second half. But, you know, a lot of credit to Davidson, and I've been critical of Bob McKillop this season. He's done a good job of starting to figure this out and starting to turn this team around and by keeping them in positive spirits. And they're a better team than they were a month ago. Oh, they're way better. It's not even 
a discussion. Yeah. I, I think with Davidson, I mean, look, they're not going to beat anybody with their defense. They're just so unathletic. I will say, I, I promised that we would talk about this. Nelson Bochi Edom is by far my favorite player on Davidson. I mean, that guy just, he's strong, he plays hard, he hits the ground diving for loose balls, and he, he had a massive game with 11 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 assists against St. Bonaventure, so good for him. That was by far his best game of the season. But outside of him, I really don't see anybody bringing that much defensive intensity on Davidson. But the one thing you always got to watch out for, as the great Dr. John Giannini kept saying during the UMass Dayton game, three-point shooting's the great equalizer, and Davidson shoots the three way better than anyone else in the conference. So right now they're at 37.6% in conference play. Second best is Dayton, who's only 34.8%. So that's a pretty big gap between one and two. I really think Davidson's only chance is probably if they just get red hot for four days in a row in Brooklyn. But with that three-point shooting ability, they always just have the potential to go off. And that's what happened this week when they, they just cruised to two easy wins. Yeah, and you look at that St. Bonaventure game where the first three minutes were Kyle Lofton and Asuna Shunahi just relentlessly attacking the rim, basically kind of picking up where they left off in the Duquesne game. And there was really kind of a sense at the first media timeout of, oh God, it's happening again. Davidson has found another team that can just destroy them inside, and they're in a ton of trouble. And then the next thing you know, the three start falling. And I think that that gave Davidson confidence to really start playing harder on the defensive end. Bochi Yodem came in the game and gave them a little bit of extra strength and size inside. And they, they really did. They turned around the game with the three-point ball. And I, I think that not only did that obviously help them get to where they needed to be on offense, but I really think that it changed the confidence of their guys to be able to go out and really play a play a plus effort on defense. Yeah, I mean you never know. I, I still I don't think this team's that great, but they are way better than a couple weeks ago. And you just never know. I, I think we have to at least give them more respect than before. One more thing I just want to talk about with Davidson. They've started to get more contributions from the bench, which is really nice because really it was it was kind of like a two-man show for a while with Jag and Kelvin Grady. But we've recently seen Hyungjun Lee play great. Uh, the freshman scored at least 12 points in four of his last five games. And then Bates Jones, too, is 11 for 24 on three-pointers in conference play, so he's gotten a lot more confidence shooting the ball. And he's also a pretty good rebounder at his size, so... It seems like Davidson's at least a little bit deeper of a team talent-wise. They still don't have that many bodies on the bench, but that's one nice thing to keep an eye on. At least they have some decent role players to go to. Yeah, I, I mean, they they got a good group of guys right now. It's just it, it goes back to everything we've talked about all season, that they just miss Keyshawn Pritchett so badly. Yep. And that's what happens when you only have one gritty, tough guy, and it really seems like Bochiotum is now another one of those guys, but then that still leaves you with only one. Yeah, I, I guess one and a half because John Axel, just as he's gotten his offensive confidence back, he's gotten his defensive confidence back too, and he's a guy who who plays like a maniac and 
is really going at 120 miles an hour all game, but he just doesn't make the same impact that they need from their grit guys up on top of the perimeter at his smaller stature. Yeah, don't sleep on John Axel, though. If you look at his conference numbers, they're not too far off last year when he was the MVP, so he's been great. All right, um, I guess, are you ready to move on from Davidson? Yeah, I mean, we, we have absolutely buried the lead on Richmond today because they probably had the most important week of anyone. Yeah, so we got a couple of Twitter questions. We'll start from our tweet we got from Noah Goldberg who says, can the Spiders stay consistent defensively down the stretch, and do they have enough on their resume for at-large consideration? Also, will at St. Bonaventure or at Duquesne be the tougher test? So where do we want to start here, Tyler? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump on the end of that question to answer the first half, which is at Duquesne is absolutely way tougher for Richmond. Because you, th- you just think about where the Spiders have had their biggest issues in conference play. And by far their worst outing was that home game against St. Louis. Against a, a team that was willing to pound them inside and against the coach and Travis Ford, who was able to counter Chris Mooney's adjustments. The difference in the Rhode Island game is David Cox didn't counter Mooney's adjustments. And that's where it worked out. Whereas I see a, a Duquesne team that plays the same style as SLU that has three guys in Michael Hughes, Bailey Steele, and Marcus Weathers that have a chance to destroy them inside, and has a coach in Keith Dambrot that you know if Richmond figures out how to stop the big guys in the first half, Dambrot's going to figure out the right counter. And Richmond has shown that while they can really absorb the initial punch, which is something that they didn't do in non-conference and they're doing extremely well now, they have a lot of trouble against the counterpunch if it's the right team to throw that counterpunch. So I think they're really going to struggle against the Dukes. And it's one of those games where their offense is going to have to overwhelm Duquesne for them to be able to survive on defense against the Dukes. I'd agree with that. I mean, one of the biggest issues for St. Bonaventure has been defending the three this year. And that completely manifested in the Davidson game. I, I think Davidson hit like 16 of them. So I think Richmond will win that game. Duquesne's going to be a bigger challenge for the reasons you mentioned. I, I just think dealing with a more physical team. Duquesne is kind of similar to St. Louis in some ways. So that's going to be a tough and tough one. And that's also the season finale. So you know Duquesne's going to want to win that one. The one other game I, I want to bring up, Richmond still hosts Davidson, which I'm actually not too concerned for the Spiders there. Richmond already won at Davidson, and honestly, I think offensively, these teams are kind of alike because they're both good at shooting the ball, and they rely a lot on moving without the ball and just getting open on cuts. Except for Richmond's just way better defensively, and that's sort of the first part of Noah's question. Richmond has improved so much over the course of the season on defense. I think a lot of that has to do with Jacob Gilliard just having a ball hawk out on the perimeter. He he really puts pressure on guys, and that makes it other that makes it difficult for their opponents to get open for shots. But I do think the Duquesne game, if if Richmond, they do have a pretty soft schedule the rest of the way. But that's going to be the one where I'm not as confident that they're going to win. But we should mention after that big VCU win that moves them up a little bit on the bubble. 
What do you think they need to do to get at-large consideration from here on out? Yeah, um, it's, I was looking at it earlier, and I got to say it's probably five and one. Yeah, it, it just it. There's no killer win chance left on their resume now. The two things that will help them is that Wisconsin and Rhode Island are both playing pretty well, and yeah, those wins are just going to look better and better. But it, it feels like they can. I don't want to say probably, but they could potentially absorb another loss from here on out. But that's probably going to be dependent on either at Bonaventure or at Duquesne being a quad one win. And it looks like the Bonaventure one probably won't. That be. won't. Just seems like they can't get themselves high enough to to get there. Yeah. But yeah, I'd say they probably got to go five and one. And then even there, you might have to make the final. Because so, in that scenario, they're either the two or the three. They might have to beat Rhodey again and then have their loss be to Dayton. So I look at Richmond's schedule. Uh, first of all, they have three games they absolutely need to win. And I think losing any of them would knock them out. So that's George Mason and UMass at home. And then they go at GW. So you have to win all three of those, no question. Out of the other three games, so at St. Bonaventure, at Duquesne, and home against Davidson, I think if you win two of them, that still keeps you alive. The way I sort of see it, if they go 6-0, and they're in no matter what. If they go 5-1, and I think they might need to pick up one more decent one in Brooklyn, at least, to get, to, to get them to the first four. But one interesting thing to think about, I'm pretty sure Richmond has two wins that are better than any of Dayton's wins. Because Wisconsin on a neutral court and at Rhode Island, those are really solid. And Dayton's best win is what? Neutral against St. Mary's? Yeah. So that's one thing. I mean, Richmond has better wins than a lot of like mid-major bubble teams. And I really don't think it's as important for teams like Duquesne to move up to quad one status. I just think Richmond, at all costs, they cannot uh, afford a bad loss because they already had the Radford game. Losing to St. Louis at home is kind of questionable. That's that's not a great one. But, look, Richmond's put themselves in position. They're 47th in the net, so that's right on the cut line just about. And, honestly, I, I expect them to go 5-1, and one, and I wouldn't be surprised to see 6-0. and oh. So... We'll see what happens. I mean, right now, I think they're about as close as it gets. They're definitely still on the outside looking in, but I I think they have enough left to make a push and make it into the tournament, especially with Blake Francis coming back a little bit earlier than we thought. He's been playing pretty well. So I kind of like Richmond's chances, to be honest. Yeah, and for them to go 5-1, and it really kind of goes back to Noah's question. Can the defense hold up? And... I'm I'm kind of torn as to how to answer this because I, I think they will struggle in both the Duquesne and Bonaventure games, but this is this is a fundamentally better defense than it was a month ago. And it's a, a credit to two things. Number one, it's a credit to the fact that Chris Mooney's been fairly creative in different games trying to figure out how to work his defensive game plan. But then other than that, it, it's a lot of credit to Grant Golden who has gone from a big negative as a defensive center in a conference where he's constantly going up against really good offensive centers to, you know what, he, 
I'm I'm not going to sit here and pretend he's an all defensive team candidate, but he's fine now. Like he, yeah. he he's become an average post defender and with how good Gilliard is at the top and with those two lengthy wings in Sherrod and Francis along the sides and with Nathan Kao, who's a been a, always been a fairly good post defender. Golden's improvements has now put Richmond at a point where they can be in above average defense in the A-10. And, you know, it's not even just the defense. It's Grant Golden in general that's going to dictate whether or not they can get themselves into the tournament. Because he is he's just been a new man the last few weeks. And the Francis injury forced them to start to go back to him on offense again something that they had really gotten away from. And it, it hit its absolute pinnacle this weekend where they looked at the film from the first VCU game and saw that Golden had destroyed VCU in the first half and VCU adjusted really well in the second half. And they decided, screw it. We're going to him again. Let's make him adjust again and try to stop him. And they never could find the right adjustment. And Grant Golden on that right block, that little in and out dive under right side spin layup was the dominant force of that entire game. It was in, there were a lot of great guys for Richmond in that game and everyone's going to be distracted by the three point numbers, but they won that game because Grant Golden was unstoppable on that right block in the first half. And then VCU had to do everything they possibly could to stop that later on, which started opening up that three point arc. Yeah, no, I think Richmond's improvement on defense has been one of the most interesting stories because they started off the season by just getting absolutely blasted on the defensive end. They gave up 90 points two games in a row. And now they're the second-ranked defense in Ken Palm just for conference games, which is crazy. I never would have expected yeah. that. But um, yeah, they're ahead of Duquesne, St. Louis, and VCU right now, only behind Rhode Island, which is... Just wild. And Grant Golden's not a rim protector by any means, but he holds his own. And same with Nathan Ko. So those guys have been good. Uh, I just want uh, let's move on real quick to Austin's question, who asks, does Richmond have a legitimate shot of reaching the two seed in the A-10? So basically, that would mean, can they catch Rhode Island? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to win out. Because if if they go six and zero, then all they then because they have the tiebreaker, all that has to happen is Rhode Island loses once. And remember, Rhode Island still has to play Dayton again. Yeah, plus Rhode Island has to go at Davidson, which I know they beat Davidson the first time at home, but that's going to be a tough game too. So I really think if Richmond goes five and one, they have a chance. If they go six and zero, I think they will because I, I don't see Rhode Island running the table, especially with that Dayton game. So. Yeah, with the tiebreaker, I mean, Richmond could definitely get the two seed, which that, that'll be interesting to see. And I mean, I guess with that, too, there's a decent chance, whichever order it happens, those teams are probably going to finish 2-3 in the A-10 tournament. So we might see a semifinal rematch. I'd be interested to see how that goes, because Richmond really took care of business that game. I mean, they played way better than we expected. Yeah, and... You know, there there is a little bit of an advantage of, or I guess not. I think my math was wrong in my head where we kind of now have this weird VCU Davidson St. Louis cluster, but that's at six, not at seven. No, they're at seven and five. No, the six oh, yeah, place, yeah. not seven place. Yeah, I, we have Duquesne in the middle there. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of feeling like the seeding's just not going to have much of a distinct advantage on anything. Basically, you just want to make sure you get to the three as opposed to being in four or five because then you don't have to play date until Sunday. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, hell, at this point, I'm not sure. If I think if you ask teams who would you rather play between VCU, St. Louis, and Davidson, you probably get different answers from everybody. Um, and then one of those teams is going to inexplicably lose to UMass the day before when Trey Mitchell drops to 35. But um, it might. No, the middle of this conference just continues to look better and better. So, yeah, Richmond definitely can get to the two seed, but I'm really not sure how much that'll even matter. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much agree with that. So, I guess, are you ready to move on? We have two more, uh, or three more, sorry, Twitter questions. So, first one comes from Trent, who asks, how many teams in the A-10 will finish with 20-plus regular season wins? And so I guess to sort of set that up, we already have Dayton with 23. As I said a couple weeks ago, the only way Dayton would lose their 20-win season is if Anthony Grant made a strong-ass offer and those get vacated. So we'll say Dayton's safe. Rhode Island and Richmond both have 19. They're not going to lose out. Duquesne and St. Louis both have 18. I'm pretty sure they're both going to win at least two. VCU's at 17 which they still have games at UMass and home against GW, so they're, they should get there. I really think the interesting one is St. Bonaventure at 17 because they have a tough schedule left. They only have five games to go, and three of them are against Richmond, Duquesne, and then at St. Louis. So they could feasibly lose all of them, but overall, I, I kind of think all of the teams I mentioned will get to 20 wins, which would be seven. But do you have any disagreements there yeah and one thing i want to mention real quick i want to give a shout out to my grandpa who i don't know if i've mentioned him on the pod or not but a duquesne alum a long time super fan of the dukes and he's been locked in on this 20 win mark for weeks now and you know he's he's someone who tends to get down on the team sometimes and he's he's becoming very confident that they're going to get to that 20 win mark and if you look at the schedule, they're home for both of the George teams. Then, yeah, you know those are two games that they should take care of, and that gets them to twenty right then and there. So, and even if they blow one of those, then their other four games are brutally hard, but they're good enough to be able to pull out one of them. So, yeah, Duquesne, Duquesne should be able to get there. It's a pretty bad breakdown if they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the Bonnies, I think that's the only questionable one yeah i mean probably comes down to them splitting over their next two games home for richmond home for duquesne because then you play oh yeah because then they play LaSalle and st joe's so yeah, yeah they, they I, get a home I, game I think against the will get there because yeah i mean in all honesty they're probably better than st louis at this point in the season it's just starting to feel that way um They've had Duquesne's number the past few years, and those games are always just bizarre and crazy and nuts and come down to three points either way. So, yeah, I I, I really think the Bonnies are going to get there. Um, uh, VCU's schedule's too easy. 
They VCU's not. We've made fun of them a lot, but they're not that bad. They're gonna. They still play oh. UMass and GW, so they're gonna win those. Yeah, but we a hundred percent sure they won't lose home for Dayton at SLU, home for Duquesne at Davidson. I think they're they have to win one of those, right? Ah. When you say it like that, they do have some tough games. I, I still have confidence VCU's going to win at least three more games this year, but I guess right now it probably doesn't feel that way for their fans. But no, I, I think they're going to get to at least 20, probably 21. God, I mean, if they if they play with the same level of urgency they did this week, they'll, they'll lose home for Duquesne at Davidson back-to-back. Yeah, I mean, they're going to they definitely need to show up. But no matter what happens, whether we get six or seven teams with 20 wins, we only had three last year. It was VCU, Davidson, and Dayton. And then eventually St. Louis passed 20 during their A-10 tournament run, but we only had three in the regular season. So already way better, which is yeah, and by the great way, to see. I think it's becoming clear, too, that last year's Davidson and Dayton teams weren't actually that good. They, they just okay. roasted on how bad this conference was. Like we we kind of knew that that Dayton team wasn't particularly great all year, but yeah. they got wins when they needed to. Getting twenty wins this year in this conference is way more impressive. Oh, than yeah. doing it last year. No, definitely agree with that. All right, so next question, and this one's going to be for you, I think, uh, from Yik Yak. Did you ask Dan Brot if we're sponsored? By Pure Leaf, yeah. So you you interviewed him, so I'll I'll let you take that. You know what? I hadn't even you know I hadn't really noticed the Pure Leaf thing until today. Really? They're you playing didn't? Fordham, and they zoom. Well, yeah, because I I just I look down to my phone when they zoom in on the coach on the sideline because I've never understood why anyone does it in any sport. But, That's fine. Um, they zoomed in on him before a foul shot. And the bottle was just being so perfectly held that the Pure Leaf logo was just ever so slightly above the screen. Like, just kind of positioned there in just a beautiful spot. And the first thing that came to my mind is, yeah, it probably makes sense that Dan Brott drinks tea during the game because he's so keyed up all game anyway that (laughs) if he was, like, drinking Pepsi... He'd be getting teed up every single game for just going crazy. But, you know, I I mean, I think Duquesne does have a little bit of a sponsorship deal with the LeBron shoes, given his connection and history with Dan Brott. Um, As for the Pure Leaf, certainly there's nothing public about this, but uh, going back to the only sitcom we ever reference on this podcast, uh, maybe it's like a 30 rock thing where they do the really subtle Snapple product placements or the soy joy <laughs> ones. Um, yeah. m- maybe it's not a sponsorship deal, but it's a product placement deal with pure leaf. And if it's not, then we could open this up. Maybe Lipton wants to get in on this. And, uh, as the Dukes get better and better next year, if they make a tournament run, uh, the big time tea companies might want to get in on that action. Yeah, maybe we'll see a bidding war. I don't know. Is the new arena for Duquesne or the naming rights set in stone for that? Because maybe, maybe the Dukes will be playing at the Pure Leaf Center next year or the Lipton Arena. I don't know. 
That would be incredible instead of playing at an arena sponsored by another college on the other side of the city that won't play you in a rivalry yeah. game. Yeah, we're going to talk about that for the Duquesne preview in the future next year. That That is one of the most mid-major things I've ever heard. But anyway. So for those who do not know, it will be called the UPMC Cooper Fieldhouse. And we will permanently refer to it as either the Cooper Fieldhouse because Chuck Cooper was a great man for the – for the game of basketball and he deserves to be honored. Um, we'll just either keep calling it. We'll call it that we'll keep calling it Palumbo or maybe we can try to make it cool to just call it the coop. Yeah, that'd be good. I like it. All right. So one more question. This comes from not a Ram Stan all in caps. I'm pretty sure this is a VCU fan, but you can never be sure in the a town. And he asks, is Trey Mitchell clear cut rookie of the year? Or is yes. there a freshman on a better team that could also win it? So you're no. saying yes? God. I, I haven't seen a center like him in his freshman year in the A-10 since Andrew Nicholson. Yeah. And now I'll, I'll, get some, I'll get some criticism for this, but I want to remind people that I don't really remember, like I don't remember very much at all about like the St. Joe's team that went undefeated. So my, my A-10 knowledge starts in like the late 2000s. Yeah. Andrew Nicholson is still the best player I've ever seen in this conference. Wait a minute. I'm going to criticize you right now. He's better than someone right now in the conference? Yes, only because Obi's only going to play two years. Oh, okay. Unless well, it... Un- so if you're saying he had a better wins- career, that's one thing, but... Yeah, I get. Yeah, I. I guess. God, I guess Obi is going to actually take the throne. Well, yeah, but I, all right, I get he's what gonna you're gonna saying. Win Nash, he's going to be the national player of the year. So yeah, no, it was nickel. It, okay, until until like the last month. That's better because even if Obi had struggled, because if Obi had struggled down the stretch, then it it still would have been Nicholson. But yeah, from like 2008 to 2020, Andrew Nicholson was the best player to play in this conference. No, he he definitely is a good case for that. I'd agree. And but, um, that's Mitchell already has that level of unstoppability to him. He's so smooth in the post. Yeah, like his post game, his post game is what he should be developing right now, and it's already so well polished. And if he starts to add that top of the key three pointer, then it's not even going to be a conversation about whether or not he could be an A ten player of the year it's going to be a conversation of whether or not he can be a legitimate NBA player. Yeah. I mean, I guess to go back to the the meat of the question, look, we both love Bones Highland, and he's been great the last couple months, but Trey Mitchell, I was shocked by this. He's averaging 19.4 in conference play, which is wild. That's third in the conference behind the two or two of the Guys that are going to be on the first team, Obi Toppin and Fats Russell. So, no disrespect to some of the other freshmen. I mean, we have some good ones this year, but Trey Mitchell was just head and shoulders above the rest. It's been a special season for him, and he's definitely lived up to the hype because going into the season, I mean, we really don't get carried away with recruiting that much because in the A-10, normally it's just not that big of a deal. We don't get the five stars or top 100 guys, but Trey Mitchell got a lot of hype over the summer and he's been as good as advertised, which has been really fun to watch. 
Yeah, and I, I want the aggregators in the UMass blogs to quote this. When you look at it from a full-season perspective, Trey Mitchell is going to have as good of a year this year as Obi Toppin did last year because he's been consistent all through the year. Obi wasn't that great the first month and a half of the year last year, and then he closed better than Mitchell's going to close. Yeah. But from start to finish, all wrapped up into one, Trey Mitchell's going to end up having as good of a year as Obi Toppin did. Yeah, it's pretty... That's, that's how remarkable this is. I mean, his counting stats are... He's going to end up averaging more points. And I think more rebounds. Obi only averaged like 14-5 and five last year. I mean, his efficiency was a lot better than Mitchell, but... Yeah, I mean, Trey Mitchell came in day one as a star for UMass, and that's just been great. On a really I mean, young team, too. He has a shot at making second team all conference. Oh, yeah. As a freshman on a bottom half team in what might be the most loaded all conference team in this in this century in the A ten. Yeah, definitely agree. All right. So that's it for Twitter questions. Did you partake in our normal segments that we usually wrap it up with? Yeah, I'll let you i I'll let you take it away here. All right. So for where he at I decided in honor of the biggest upset of the season, I wanted to talk about a George Mason player, so I hope we haven't talked about him before, but I went with Otis Livingston II, who just graduated last year, finished as one of the highest scorers ever for the Patriots with 1,865 career points. He's currently with Horsens IC in Denmark, averaging 12 points and 5 rebounds, or sorry, 5 assists a game, so still having a nice career overseas, and Good for Otis Livingston. He was a really fun player for four years. It's funny that you pick Otis Livingston, by the way. One of my just, like, random favorite A-10 players. I'm not even sure oh, me too. how I became attached to him, but he was just a guy I always loved to watch. Um, because I also went with a guy who graduated in 2019, and that is Josh Cunningham, the former Dayton Flyer, who started out his pro career over in the Netherlands and has just recently come back to the U S he's down in the G league playing with the Westchester Knicks played six games with them so far. He's just kind of at the end of the bench right now as he comes back over to the U S but 3.7 points a game. Uh, He's got two total rebounds over the six games, but congratulations to Josh Cunningham. Come back to the U S. Yeah, that's awesome. Big fan of Josh Cunningham, for sure. All right, uh, do you want to do stat of the day first? No, I'll let you you do this one first again. Okay, so this is an honor. Well, sort of, so from the game this weekend where Davidson was just raining threes against the Bonnies, and also listening to SB Unfurled and Bonna Commenter on their new podcast, just complaining about everybody showing up to... um, St. Bonaventure and drilling a ton of threes. So I looked it up. St. Bonaventure has given up the most threes in conference play, and it's not even close. They've given up 121. Second place is Fordham, who's only given up 100. So the Bonnies just, that's been an issue all year, three-point defense. And I guess their percentage isn't the worst. It's the fourth worst at 34.9%, but... Yeah, those guys weren't wrong. The Bonnies do tend to get lit up, especially at home. So for my stat of the day, I'm I'm actually going to go to something that happened in Olean 
And I can't believe I'm the one to do this after how much you've been all over him all weekend. Nelson Bochi Yodum puts up 11 points and 10 rebounds in that game, plus five assists. That, my friends, is three career highs in one game. Wow. He doubles his career high in rebounds. He has two more assists than he ever had and almost doubles his career high in points. He got a layup to get to seven early in the second half to hit his career high. So shout out to Nelson Bochi Yodum, who had a, a just a beautiful box score gem on Friday and had a game that he'll, he'll probably remember for for a little while here. Dude, that guy is definitely my favorite like bench warmer in the conference. I just I think David's well, not play a bench warmer anymore. Or well not a bench warmer, but I mean still like favorite bench player, I guess. He he should be playing more. He's Davidson's only tough guy, and he's their only shot blocker. I, I'm a big fan. So hopefully that big game gets him a little bit more playing time out there. Yeah, so if you don't, do you have anything else to add? Uh, not much. We have a pretty big week coming up. So Dayton goes to VCU, and then later on VCU goes at St. Louis for our Friday night game this week. So there's just, it, it's going to be a really good weekend of A-10 basketball. Um, and yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, we only have three more weeks till the conference tournament, so it's winding down. Yeah, and you know, speaking of this conference tournament, I, I think that everyone has kind of started to get in their head that this might be a, a more chalk tournament than we're used to with most likely Dayton, but possibly Rhode Island or Richmond just rampaging through. And, you know, it makes sense. A lot of the teams right below them, they have their big flaws. St. Saint Bonaventure with their bad three-point defense. St. Louis with their inability to make a jump shot from a guy whose name isn't Javante Perkins. Um, VCU with basically everything now. <laughs> Davidson with their rebounding. Um, who am I missing? Uh, oh, no, that, that, those I think are that's five. about it, yeah. Um, but this this is so much better of a middle than we're used to in this conference. And I understand that all of these teams are flawed. And in a way, Richmond really is too. Rhode Island and Dayton a little bit less so. But, you know, for, for all of the fan bases of the teams in the middle who are maybe just kind of losing hope as the top of this conference looks better and better, you know, I, I think it's time that we do our own Rothstein cliche. And we have our mantra and our quote for this final month of the season. Because to quote the great Don Henley, in a New York minute, anything can change. Thank you guys for listening to the Three Bid League podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars. Send us your Twitter questions if you want them answered. And be sure to tell a friend.